Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S Agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Dr. J.J. Peterson. J.J. is the Chief of Teaching and Facilitation at StoryBrand, a company founded by Donald Miller that created a communication framework that helps people clarify their messaging and marketing so their businesses can grow with ease. JJ travels around the world facilitating story brand workshops to help organizations grow their businesses. JJ has a PhD in communication and a master's in theology and the arts. He has served in marketing and PR in two multinational nonprofit organizations, worked in higher education as a communication professor and dean of students, and speaks to thousands of people every year about creating marketing that gets results. In addition to that laundry list of achievements, JJ has also danced in a Missy Elliott music video, got his first acting gig on the West Wing, and was baptized in a cattle trough while surrounded by Maasai warriors and their cows. You can find some of his work online at youaregoingtobeok.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, JJ, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And most people don't get that uh, second part of the bio with uh, Missy Elliott and Africa. (laughs) Yeah, I like to dig deep, you know? Yeah, you did. You found it. (laughs) So take me back a bit. What was it like uh, growing up in Kenya for you? Yeah, so my parents were actually missionaries, and I lived in Kenya for about four years, from around six to ten, and I really only have great memories. We lived, when we first moved there, we lived out in the bush, and so we were surrounded by Maasai villages and uh, a ten-foot-high fence around our little house so that the lions couldn't get in. Like, we could actually hear them roaring at night. One of the first days we were there, I put my hand behind the trash bag to pull it out and a baby cobra slithered by me. Anybody who I end up dating starts hearing stories and they're like, how are you alive? Like, how are you <laughs> alive after living there? But <laughs> it was it, it was one of those things. It was early 80s. And so still back when literally like giraffes and elephants would come through our yard. So it was, I, I think it really transformed me and gave me a very much more broad view of the world and 
problems and all that stuff. I always say, if you keep your world big, then your problems are in perspective. If your prob if your world is small, then your problems take up it take up everything. But if your world's big, your problems are the same size; they're just in perspective. So, I feel like that gave me that perspective starting from a very young age. Oh, I love that philosophy, and yeah, I would totally agree. I spent. Uh... My last deployment in the army was, was to Niger, and I was living just just way out in the Trans-Sahel, just middle of nowhere in the desert. Yeah, um, virtually nobody around, and you'd have people living. You know, we'd have ninety mile an hour haboobs come through, just incredible yeah. sandstorms. Yeah, and you couldn't you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and there were people living in like huts made of like sticks and t-shirts that would somehow yep. hold up, and it would destroy our like air helicopter hangers and stuff like that and just yeah. amazing to see what people do when they have nothing and what it's like to live yeah. at, like the bottom of the world economic index and everything it's yeah really people say like necessity is the mother of invention and mm. it, i've actually wanted to like do some research and write a book about in the west we often we have a like a throwaway culture and so we build things quickly and fast so we can use them if they don't last they're gone but over there, you have so few materials and so little like to draw from that people are so inventive. And so every problem that comes up, they have these really unique solutions to that I think we miss because we don't have kind of that necessity in the West. Oh, couldn't agree more. Yeah, the ingenuity is pretty fantastic. And oh, yeah. it is fascinating also to see just like, how natural a phenomenon commerce itself is like even if you mm. don't have two sticks to rub together like you're going out finding everyone i remember one guy i would see he literally would just find every sandal he could that was just yeah. left somewhere by someone this is like near a french mining community and so the french had obviously colonized it centuries ago but they had still had a uranium mine or something that then they would, that was actually a lot of the local commerce was built off the money that they were bringing in. But then people would just actually take every little thing that they could find and just repurpose it. And now it's like, yeah. oh, here's my sandal store. And it's just disposed sandals of all the rich French people that have been living in the area. Yeah. And I think that kind of stuff honestly shaped me from a very young age of learning. I think being excited about creativity and excited about looking for unique ways of solving problems, all that kind of stuff. And even just from a very young age shaped, I think, who I am today in huge ways, even though it was only like for four years. Oh, totally. And it, it is definitely, especially as you are literally facing like more danger than the average American child was, but I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it was like more free range. And like, I would see kids, I would just inventing whatever they could playing with a stick and a wheel and, and just like making fun, just like creating yes. something. Whereas now everything here is so overly manufactured. It's all helicopter parents. It's all just control. And yeah. now you can just let p kids be free to like do their own thing and everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. We used to chase after wildebeest. Like <laughs> now I like look at that and we never got close to them. Like we would take our dog and run out into the field. And now I'm like, would I ever, <laughs> would my mother let me do that today? I really doubt it. <laughs> yeah. So tell me the story about your baptism. It sounds really fun. My parents, like I said, were missionaries. And so I had decided that it, I wanted to get baptized. And the only water that we had around was this feeding trough, basically like a water trough for the local Maasai villages. And so they had different days that they would come in and water their cattle, depending on the 
village and we picked a day that nobody was supposed to be there and showed up and there it was full of cattle and just surrounded by these Maasai warriors. And so my dad talks about how we, they kept trying to dunk me like under the water before all the cows drank it. And so I was like covered <laughs> in, I got sprinkled, I got dunked, I got cow slobber. Like I got every kind of baptism you could imagine while they were trying to literally keep the cows away from licking me and drinking the water. And the Maasai warriors were just all standing around. So there's pictures of my baptism of like cows and friends and warriors. And then I decided to celebrate by wearing some lederhosen from Germany. And so then I... (laughs) It was like one of those w- weird experiences where it's like, okay, I, I put on my lederhosen and went and climbed on an anthill, and that was my baptism. <laughs> wow. That's got to be one of the most really diverse and eventful baptisms in history, I would imagine. Yeah. Nobody's yeah, got those so. photos. I know. My dad was like, <laughs> you had it all covered too, all systems. Like you were dunked, you were sprinkled, you were cowlick. Like you, yeah. you got it all. Thoroughly yeah. baptized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then tell me, what first got you into the communications field? Because I know you you did that in undergrad as well as later getting a PhD. Yeah, I my parents were amazing storytellers. My dad was a preacher and my mom was a teacher and they both really honestly could hold a room when everybody would listen to my parents' stories. They were just great storytellers. And I think from a very early age, I was just drawn to that idea. Like I was drawn to the idea of telling good stories and owning a room and being able to influence people through the art of story. And I even remember like when we were on long road trips with my parents, they would play tapes of Garrison Keillor. And I would listen and my dad would actually, while we were in the car, point out the techniques that Garrison was using in order to capture the audience even better. Like my dad was teaching us how to be better storytellers in the car, like when we were little kids. And that just always carried through. And we were performers a little bit and different things like that. And then obviously my dad and mom both preached and were on the stage. So I was just always drawn to that, like communicating, telling stories. And then my freshman year in college, I went and I lived in the slums of Tijuana and worked for a nonprofit organization that did community development and came back from there. And they, I remember them saying, we just don't have anybody who can tell our story well, who could get more people in and get donations. And so I decided like I wanted to get their story out to the world. And so I changed my degree. I was going into teaching at the time and and changed it to communication. And that's where it all started for my professional career was doing nonprofit marketing and branding for this organization down that worked in Mexico. And so then you just loved it enough that you were like, I have to get a PhD. My, it's so funny because you mentioned these random little facts about my life and my life has really been all over the place because I did that for a while. I um, was a youth pastor for a while. I actually went into improv comedy and toured around the U S and Canada for a couple of years. And ultimately when I was when I was touring, I was with a lot of people who were speaking and teaching, and they were actually horrible. <laughs> like they were just not <laughs> not good speakers and teachers. And I really was like I was getting tired of the touring life because we were always on the road. And I was like, okay, I want to go back and teach the next generation how to be better communicators. 
and, and that really is how it started. And so I went and got my master's and my master's was in theology and the arts. So it's a study of like television and film and music and stories that are told in those capacities, like how to use the arts to convey theology, which essentially is the story of interaction with man and interaction with the other, with God. Because Jesus in the Bible said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and all the commandments are based on these. So essentially like everything that Christianity and faith is based on is how you interact with the other, with God, and how you interact with each other. So it was how do I teach people how to tell stories through film, television, music about our relationship with each other and our relationship with the other. And I, that's what I got my master's in. And I started teaching at the college level and then going, if I want to make a career out of this, I need to get a PhD. And so I, that's what sparked that. And so then I studied I, in my PhD. Originally, I was actually studying C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and mystery. I actually went to Oxford, it, not the school, but I went to Oxford, the town and studied C.S. Lewis there where he worked. And then from there, then it shifted over into narrative. And then I ultimately, my PhD is my dissertation is in the effectiveness of narrative marketing. Oh, wow. That's quite the journey. Yeah. Like, instead, of, uh, instead of Jesus is my co-pilot, it's Jesus is my public speaking coach almost, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And wow. So like after all that, it must have been pretty wild, like then finding Donald Miller this point. It, it was. Yeah. So I actually, I had been working again. I just gave you a little bit of highlights, but I was working at, I was Dean of students at a college and I was living in Southern California. And as you do in Southern California, I sold a reality television show to a production company and the reality show was called bad a brothers. And the premise was that my brothers and I were so not bad a that we couldn't say the word. And we wanted to up our bad A reputation. And the way we did that was by traveling around the United States and finding those old weird laws that are still on the books. Like you can't cross a Minnesota border with a duck on your head. And we'd research the history of those laws and we would break those laws so we could be more bad A. <laughs> and so I had, I, we had signed with a production company and I had left, I had resigned from the school to pursue this Hollywood stuff a little bit more. And at the, I had met Donald Miller and he was just starting StoryBrand and he's like, why don't you come out and brand your TV show? Come and I'm doing this thing about teaching companies how to clarify their message and create great marketing. So why don't you come out and do that? And I was like, sure. And in my mind, a little bit, I, I don't know how much I've told him this, but I was a little bit arrogant. You know what? I have a master's in storytelling. Like I'm in my PhD. I've done marketing for years. I teach this at a university level. Okay, I'll come watch, see your cute little thing here. And I, <laughs> and I came out here to Nashville and I, I was blown away. He had taken kind of story principles that I had been studying for 20 years and have been around since Aristotle and Plato and simplified them in such a way that anybody could really understand how story works. And then he took those 
that simple story framework and applied it to marketing and said, no matter whether you're a nonprofit, a solopreneur, a huge business, B2B, B2C, private, like a consultant or lawyer, anything, this, it works for your marketing. And I just honestly wanted everybody to know about it because I had struggled for so long getting ready to write an email for marketing or create a website. And you sit down every time, like, how does this work? How do I do this? And just frustrated by having to start over every time. And all of a sudden, this framework just took all the guessing work out of it. It showed me exactly what to write and do it in a way that didn't feel sleazy and did it in a way that actually worked better than anything I'd ever done before. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more, like what makes StoryBrand so special as a framework and as a company? So many companies are like their messaging is just confusing. They are so close to their product and service that they don't actually know how to explain what they do in a way that invites customers into a great story. And the other thing is most companies are telling the wrong story. Most companies are trying to make themselves the hero of their marketing story. And the reality is your customer is the hero and you need to be the guide. You need to actually be Obi-Wan Kenobi to their Luke Skywalker because every one of us wakes up every day as the hero of our own story, right? Like I get up, got up this morning and there were problems I was encountering. There's things I needed to accomplish. I'm very focused in my world of what I need to take care of. And that's every customer that's out there, every consumer, every client, they're the living their own story and they're the hero of that story. If companies try to position themselves in their marketing as the hero of their story, so they're like, we're the best, we're the greatest, we're really, here's all the things we can do, then companies are the hero of the story and that actually puts them in competition with their customer's story. Their customer is living their story and the company is living their story and ne'er the two shall meet, right? One needs to win and one needs to lose in order for this to work. So I need to charge you more money or get more money out of you as my customer for me to win or you need to get a better deal and I need to lose because we're in opposite stories. But if you actually create a story that you get to invite customers into to where you're in the same story where they're the hero and you're the guide. Now you actually, your whole job is to help your customer win. And when they win, you win. And so what we do is we teach companies how to position themselves as the guide in their customer story. And we use a simple seven part framework. So it's all based in story and how story works and understanding that all stories really are the same. And there are seven elements to every good story. And those elements are that in any good story, you first meet a character and you understand very early on in the story what the character wants, right? Jason Bourne wants to know who he is. He wants to know his history. And it has to be about one thing. Jason Bourne can't also be trying to train for a marathon and open a bakery and all this other stuff. That doesn't make a good story. So you have to identify what the character, the hero, wants. Then, number two, the hero has to encounter a problem. And something gets in the way of that person finding out, the hero finding out and getting what they want. 
So they counter a problem, and this is where the story really gets good. If there is no problem in a story, there is no story. And so the basically the entire movie or story is about the hero trying to overcome this problem. So hero wants something, one, encounters a problem, two. Three is they meet a guide. And this is just somebody who has already been before the hero. So they've, they're they like the hero in that they've overcome the same problems that the hero is trying to overcome. They've been there, done that. They've helped other people win. So they meet a guide. Number three. Number four is that guide gives them a plan. There is always a simple and clear plan to move the hero forward. With Luke Skywalker, it is you have to trust the force. With Katniss and Hunger Games, it's you have to, we have to endear sponsors so that you get more gifts. In, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's that we have to take the ring to Mordor. There's always a plan so that no matter how crazy the goals of the hero are, there we as an audience can see there's a way forward. Then there is a moment in the story where the hero must be called to action. There's usually a deadline, so a bomb is going to go off, or if they don't destroy the ring, the earth is going to be taken over. There's something bad that is going to happen if they don't act now. So that's call to action. And then six, we have to understand if there is how the story can end positively. So what does a happy ending look like? That's success. And number seven, what a negative outcome would look like, a tragic ending, which we would call failure. So what we know that if if they don't make it to Mordor, then the world is destroyed. If they do, then like good triumphs over evil. So those are the seven elements of every good story. A hero who wants something, who has a problem, who meets a guide, who gives them a plan that calls them to action that results in either success or failure. So first we teach people how these principles work, that they've worked for centuries. Aristotle and Plato really argued back in poetics that story is the most powerful way to influence culture and influence individuals. So if you want to change people's minds or change their actions, the best way to do it is through story. And so those are the story principles that have been passed down for centuries. What we do then after we teach people how story works and why it works with our brain and kind of some more research and scientific data, then we kind of show, all right, so now that you understand story, let's invite your customer into a story. So then we go through and we identify based on those seven parts of the framework, what is it that your customer wants and how do we articulate that very clearly? And it can only be one thing. You may say your customer wants 500 things doesn't matter. For the clarity of the story, the story needs to be about one thing. So identifying what is it that your customer wants. Then what is the problem that is getting in the way for your customer? So the only reason you exist as a company or even as a leader is because you're solving problems for people. You have to identify what are the problems that you're solving for your customer. Then you need to position yourself as their guide. And you do that with empathy and authority. So you basically have to say, I've been where you've been. I understand what you're going through, but I've also won the day already. So position yourself as the guide. Then you need to give them a plan, a very clear and simple plan of how to do business with you or how to win the day. 
then you have to call them to action with clear calls to action. And then you have to cast vision for what their life is like if they do or don't do business with you. So if they do business with you, that's success. What does their life look like? And really cast a vision both short-term and long-term for what they what success they're going to experience after working with you. And then failure, what their life will look like if they don't do business with you, which essentially is just that their problems are not solved. So that's really what we do, that we create this unique framework that's based in story, teach you how to write your own story for your company and your customers, and then show you how to put that language on your website and emails. And I just gave a long explanation to it, but Really what it does is it simplifies the whole process and allows people to basically have a repeatable framework to know what to write when they create emails and websites. So it's easy. And then it also just works. It's based in formulas that work. Oh, totally. That was one of the reasons I decided to become a StoryBrand certified guide was as I was starting my own marketing agency, I was like, oh, I want something more than just oh, we like Pacifico, they're cool and smart yeah, and yeah. whatever. I wanted something replicable that was, you know, someone could rely on that, hey, this is going to continue to produce results and, and be an excellent framework to work from. But now you've basically got me, ever since you said Jason Bourne opens a bakery, <laughs> I'm just like, I want to see a reality TV show that's just like, someone trying to like like a cooking competition with martial arts right like you've got to fight people off right like iron chef but there's actual but like, like actual iron there. oh my yeah gosh. exactly a little we like should, samurai fights we shouldn't you should cut this part out of the podcast so we can keep it to ourselves and really <laughs> somebody's gonna steal that somebody's 100 percent gonna steal that I don't have the time for it. They better steal it. I want to. I want to see Just it. Just want to watch so it. If you're Somebody else create it. Go, go make it happen. Someone. <laughs> That's great. So tell me, what are you most excited about for the future of StoryBrand as a company? It's we've done a lot of growing, and I think like many businesses during the pandemic, we were we felt like we were hustling a little bit, like having to work a little bit harder, and and find new ways. All of our workshops during the before the pandemic were in person. So we do private workshops and we do live workshops where we can come in and do private workshop with your company where we get your whole team on the same page, clarify your message with everybody or like you can come to our live stream workshops where just as an individual and we walk you through the process and give you a coach to make sure you're doing it right. But all of those were done in person. And all of a sudden the world shut down and we had to figure out how to pivot every one of our products to something that was virtual. <laughs> and so it felt like all of last year, we were just hustling and struggling to, we still grew. We actually grew during the pandemic. We helped more people because of, because they were also having to pivot. So we actually did great business, but it felt like a hustle. And it feels like now we're back into moving into a season where we can all breathe a little bit and be a little bit more generous and a little bit more open. And I think a lot of times when you go through a hustle season, it's really hard not to be selfish, right? Like you're in survival mode. And so story brand, I think you, you asked a question that I didn't answer as you said, you know, what's so special about StoryBrand? And what is so special about StoryBrand that keeps me going all the time is that we really work to play the guide 
for our heroes. We really want people to succeed. So we give away a lot of information. We're very, we're very generous with what we allow people to do and what we are giving. We wrote a book and put everything in it. So if people really want to try to do this on their own without us, they can. Now, if they want coaching and more expert advice, then they come to one of our workshops. But we give it all essentially away for 10 bucks in a book. And when you go into survival mode and you have to like change and pivot and create new products and do all this different stuff, you have to be a little bit more inwardly focused. Now we still, I think we're pretty generous during the pandemic, but if I'm honest, the thing that I'm most excited about moving through the rest of 2021 and into 2022 is we're not creating new products, new services. We've got everything together and we can get back to just being even better guides for our customers. Mm. That's fantastic. And yeah, you guys definitely deliver a ton of value. And like you said, yeah, if it's just in the book, it's like, hey, yeah, go out there, make it happen yourself or do nothing or hire one of us, yeah. you know, hire a guide to, yep. to help you get things going. Yeah, for sure. So I, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just said, I love it. Yep. So tell me, I'd love to know, like, how did you get on the West Wing? And then how did you get to dance for Missy Elliott. In my in my season of of like touring in improv comedy, which I did for about three years, when I moved to Southern California and lived at the beach, basically. I lived in Laguna Beach. So when I wasn't touring, I would be at the beach and I just started to pick up side gigs. So I got an agent and I was like, hey, when I'm in town, you can send me out on stuff. And so my very first acting gig was on the West Wing. I was a reporter on Jimmy Smith's campaign trail. And, and so it was like season six or something like that. And you have to have a pause button to see me because <laughs> I'm just like barely over Bradley Whitford's shoulder like two or three times. But I'm sure it made a lasting impression on people and it was life changing for them to see what the I was an exhausted reporter on a plane and I think I played it really well. So that was that. And then Missy Elliott was the same thing. I got a, a notice from my agent that was like, we're looking for a chubby guy who can dance. And I was like, that has my name all over it. And <laughs> went in and auditioned and actually auditioned with, with Missy Elliott. And I think pretty much the reason I got the gig is because we were the same height. So I'm five. Oh, wow. I'm five, four. And so is she. And so like, she's right around there. She might even be five, three. And so I think that's why I got it. But yeah, I, I danced with her for about two hours and you'll see about five seconds of it in the video, in the video chingling. Very nice. I'll have to go check that out. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just have fun. I, I go through seasons where like I say, yes to kind of everything i literally be like all right whatever comes my way i'm just going to experience it and do it and then there are seasons i have to pull back and go all right i'm going to stay focused and just be here and say no to most things for a while so that was during one of my yes seasons where i was like okay sure i'll dance in a missy elliott music video oh so cool yesterday i was i had a, a facebook memory pop up of a year ago where i had actually come out as pansexual and non-binary and at 36 years old and something I'd known for a very long time and it just keeping it all to myself essentially. And I know you, you or someone came out as a gay man, like while you were a bit older and also mm -hmm. being a pastor. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I came out when I was 36 
as well, maybe 37, I think 36. And it was something I had known my whole life and had fought against it. And really like at different points, I dated women and I had decided I would be single and celibate for a little while. And there were just some different phases of really being honest with myself. Cause I, I think for the most part, I just thought I would always change that if I just prayed hard enough and worked hard enough or met the right girl that I would change and that would just be part of the process. So I never fully admitted to myself that I was gay because I felt like if I did, then that would be a bridge too far. I couldn't come back from that bridge. So I never held a guy's hand. I never kissed somebody. I never had sex with a guy or a girl. I just really, in fact, there was part of me that was like, maybe I'm like non-sexual. Maybe I'm agender. And, but that wasn't actually true. <laughs> so I was trying to really process through all of that. And the biggest piece for me was my faith in my family. Growing up your whole life, being told that isn't something that is looked on by God. And in, in my family, I would almost say being a pastor is family business. And I actually don't even mean that negatively. Like in my parents' generation and my generation. So just those two generations of our family, I believe there are 13 ordained pastors. So it, oh wow, yeah, like my, my mom was a principal at a Christian school, but also a worship pastor. My dad's a pastor. My brother was a youth pastor. My sister was a children's pastor. And my brother is, was a music pastor and is now planting a church. So like everybody in my family was ordained. It is ordained. And so it just was very hard and figuring out what I was going to do. And for me, my biggest kind of moment came when I was going through, we'd sold the television show and I was doing a bunch of stuff at the school and I was trying to figure out what was going on. I just got in this big stress. I, I was just carrying way too much stress. And I actually thought I had a heart attack and ended up in the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, the doctor was like, you don't have anything physically wrong with you and you're going to live. And I actually broke down in tears because I didn't realize it, but I was like actually looking for an act. I was mm. looking for a way to not struggle with this anymore. And that's a moment where I was like, okay, something's I really need. I've been ignoring this and I need to really face this because I what no matter what's going on, I know wanting to die is not right. <laughs> so I resigned from the school I was at because it was a Christian school and kind of used the excuse of selling the show as a way of pursuing Hollywood and stuff. And I went on what I called a 40-day journey of feasting and fasting. And so I spent the next 40 days, like I would go to a monastery for a week in silence and solitude. And then I would go on a wine tour in Napa. And then I'd go back to a monastery for silence and solitude. And then I went to Las Vegas. And I just did that for 40 days, like going to a monastery and being secluded and then being in with going to a football game with my brother, tailgating. And so it was really like genuinely what I feasting and fasting of trying to be away from everything and in the absence, trying to hear my own voice and hear God's voice. And then also like in the plenty in Vegas and in Napa going, can I hear God and can I hear myself in this? And ultimately, I, I think I was, uh, I wouldn't have said it then, but I was looking for permission from God. Basically, is it okay? You're going to be 100% okay. I'm 100% okay with you, all that stuff. And 
uh, that never came through the process. But what I did discover through those 40 days is very distinct feelings slash messages I was getting from my study and from people around me. And it was really like that God loves you, you have people who love you, and you're going to be okay. And that's, at the time, it's not as profound as it feels to me now, but I was a little disappointed. (laughs) But those three kind of phrases have really carried me through the past few years of just going, anytime things feel hard or struggle or different things, because even in marketing, there are people who don't want to work with me, even though the stupid thing is I can make a millions of dollars. I'm like, I can literally make you millions of dollars and you won't work with me because I'm gay. And that's happened. And, but anytime a hard moment comes up or things come up, I just repeat those things to me. You know what? I, I believe God loves me. I have people who love me and I'm going to be okay. Oh, I love that. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Oh, favorite failures. That hurts a little bit. I think, well, okay, I do have a favorite failure because it's funny. But just in the sense of I went on an audition for a a show for a commercial for this. It was called Spidey Dad. And they were for these toys uh, like Spider-Man toys. And the premise was that like this goofy dad would put on a Spider-Man mask and then ride a bike and fall into a mud or like swing out over something and run into a tree. And then the premise of the commercial was like, you don't have to put on a mask to be a superhero. And then you play with these toys. And so I went in for my first audition and everybody in the room was laughing. It was great. And so then I came back for the second audition and I do the exact same thing I did at the first one, but different people are in the room, like the director is there and everything. And I'm sitting there and I finished the audition and everybody's laughing and the director is not. And he looks right at me and he goes, he looks and he goes, I get that you're funny. I get it. So don't push that, but I need you to smirk. When you look out over the, I want you to pretend you're on a mountain and looking out over a city and I want you to smirk. So I was like, okay. So I go through the whole thing again and a few less people laugh this time. And he gets up out of his chair and he comes and he gets right in my face and he goes, you have to smirk smirk do you know what a smirk is and I I go I thought I did and he goes give me a smirk and he goes what's a smirk and I go kind of a cocky knowing smile kind of thing that's half smile and he's yes give me that and I go okay and so we go through it again and by the way like every time I'm doing this they're playing the music eye of the tiger and so they just (laughs) keep like pushing play on I have a tiger and I'm like and so they go I have a tiger and I put on my mask I do this smirk and so this time I smirk as I look over the city and he just gets up out of his chair and he starts screaming at me and he's like smack, smack. and he's like getting closer and closer to me screaming my face and I'm trying to smirk the best I can smirk and which just basically meant that the side of my mouth just kept getting higher and higher it was embarrassing <laughs> it was horrible and so that's probably one of my favorite failures because it was the dumbest thing like just this guy yelling smirk in my face and the only thing honestly like I learned from that one is like auditioning is hard because you're putting yourself out there and being vulnerable. And sometimes it's about your skill. And then sometimes it's just about the mood that people are in when you walk in the room. Like that director clearly 
was trying to prove a point with me with the people in the room and it had nothing mm. to do with me. Like I could just tell something had happened where he was like losing control or something like that. And so he had to prove to everybody in the room that he was in charge mm. and make me look like an idiot in the process. And at first I was devastated by that. And then I, like, when I stepped back, I was like, that literally had nothing to do with me. Everybody thought I was funny. I did exactly what he asked me to do. He just was trying to prove a point and I can, I need to just let that go. It has no reflection on me at all. And I think there are moments in life that is true. There's moments in life where you did something wrong that caused the failure and you need to pause and reflect on that and learn from it. I genuinely think failure is only really failure unless you learn and learn from the thing that the mistake that you made but other times it's like hey these these circumstances were out of my control and this is something i have to just wash my hands of and learn how to move on oh totally yeah i think that's powerful across life it's just okay most people aren't thinking about you they're not most people yes. aren't judging you like they've everyone's so stuck inside their own heads. Like you really don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Yep. So exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So tell me what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made and feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly mm. as you like. Yeah, I think the investment in myself and what I mean by that is like, there have been moments in my life that I've had to bet on myself and I've had to have the courage to bet on myself. And that happened like in comedy, that happened in Hollywood, that happened moving out to Nashville, Tennessee. When I moved out to Nashville for StoryBrand, it, it was basically a company with three employees and a couple workshops that couldn't really afford to pay me. And basically they said, we'll give you this tiny salary to, to, so that you can live. We know you're not going to be homeless, but barely. And then we're going to trust that you can actually build some programs and build some things where we can give you a percentage of that and you can actually make a livable wage. And that was me betting on myself, investing in myself and saying, okay, I'm going to sacrifice and go out here, move away from my friends, to bet on myself, invest in my own future, and know that I can actually make this work. And if, if it didn't, I could always move back to LA and do all this other stuff. But the reality was, like, I'm going to take a bet on me, and I'm going to invest in my own future. And I think, especially growing up in the church, that was something that often felt very hard, because you feel like that's being selfish. And I, I don't think it's actually being selfish, because... I know that there are things that I have to offer that actually can ultimately help make the world better for other people. And when I don't step into that, then I'm actually going against what I think, honestly, God wants for the, me and for this world. And that those kind of things, like coming out of the closet was me betting on myself, that actually, that this was, I who I was as a person was enough. And that if other people were going to turn away because of me being honest and being open about stuff, then I was just going to bet on myself for that. And it's interesting because not to make it too cheesy and back to marketing, <laughs> but it's interesting because one of the things I just recorded a podcast earlier today, challenging people to actually bet on their own product by being mm -hmm. bold in calling people to action, right? Calling people to action is one of the 
principles of the story brand framework. And a lot of people are scared to say buy now or set up an appointment. So they say things like learn more, or they say things like, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. And I'm like, no, do you believe that your product or service actually can make the world a better place? That it actually can solve problems for people? Well, if you do, then I actually think it's your responsibility to call people to action, not to be timid about who you are and what you have to offer. And if people don't want to step into that and buy your product and service, okay, the, the, then they have that choice. You don't need to then chase them down the street. But the reality is be bold about what you offer the world. And when you can be confident in that, that what you bring actually makes the world a better place, whether it's a product, a service, or yourself, then you stand firm in that and you call people to action and you bet on yourself a little bit, whether you're a business or whether you're a person, and say, I'm going to invest in this and I'm going to, because I know that on the other side, when people engage with this, they're going to be better for it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It actually reminds me of uh, a recent book I just read by a fellow story brand guide, uh, Catherine Brown, called How Good Humans Sell. And it's Mm. really about changing and um, upgrading your mindset around selling. And one of the big things she talks about is that decide or deciding not to call people to action and deciding to shrink away or not follow up is really a misuse of your power right Mm. because sales is really a service business because you have something that you think will make someone's life better and if you don't actually share it with them and, and tell them that they should buy it or ask them to buy it or anything like that then you're making that decision for them And that's really a misuse of your power. And so that you really need to change your mindset around that so you can put things out there. Because if your thing will make the world a better place, then withholding it makes the world a worse place. And so you can really get out and put yourself out there. You are going to make the world a better place. I love that. I love that. Oh, yeah. Great book. Highly recommend. So tell me, what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And do you think there's any advice that they should ignore? I think one would be, don't be afraid of failure. Don't seek it out. (laughs) Don't seek out failure, but don't be afraid of it. I I often would ask myself, what's the worst that could happen? Even like moving out to Nashville and giving up my career to jump in a new direction. Be like, the worst that can happen is I end up on a friend's couch. Okay, I'm going to struggle financially for a while, but I'll be okay. And so I think just going, not being afraid of failure and taking a risk on yourself doesn't mean you need to say, I'm going to be in the NBA when you're 5'2". Don't create dreams. You asked what the worst advice people should ignore. The whole, you can be anything you want to be advice is actually, I would ignore that. (laughs) Be the best you can be, not be anything. Don't be everybody else. Don't try to be an NBA player if you're only 5'2 and 400 pounds. Be the best you that you can be and that be the best you can be. And that will be anything that you can, that's where you can succeed. So don't be afraid of failure and bet on yourself and be the best you can be. Not Don't try to be everything everybody else thinks you can be or what the world thinks is best. Be the best you can be. Oh, I love that. It reminds me of actually being in law school. I was, I was very fortunate. I went to UC Irvine and oh, nice. I was there for the founding dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, who's a, a titan in the legal industry and legal education is perennially the most influential person in legal education. And he has uh, what I 
believe is like a photographic memory and an ability to, I took constitutional law with him and he would talk about John Marshall in the 1800s and he would tell stories that it sounded like he had a time machine and he was actually there. He'd be like, yeah, oh, yeah. It, was a, it was a dark and stormy night and John Marshall was reflecting <laughs> on this thing and you're just like, you're, you sound a little too familiar with this, right? And, <laughs> yeah. But he could also go through an outline in his head. Like the entire course was basically like a hundred page outline that was just parts of his treatise on constitutional law. And he would just repeat it verbatim from memory, just like with nothing in front of him, no PowerPoints or anything. He would just be like, and he would talk for 30 minutes and then he'd be like, okay, and then going back to sub point B in section two, and you're like, what the hell? Like he's still <laughs> inside the outline. I've never seen anything like it. And and then he also writes tons of books and case books. And he's written the, the predominant constitutional law case book that most law students use across most law schools and just incredibly prolific. And I remember just being like, how the hell do you do this? Like, how, and he was just, he's very like the most humble, kind person I've ever met. And he was just like, oh, I did four years of debate in high school and four years of debate in college. So I just think in an outline and I'm like, dude, lots of people do eight years. Yeah. This is some next level <laughs> shit. Yeah. And, but, the, but I would look at it and I'd be like, like, I will never be a law professor. I will never be a law school dean or argue before the Supreme Court. But really the lesson I took out of it was along the lines of what you're saying is I was like, anyone can be this prolific. And so it's whatever you do, be the most prolific version of yourself. And that's what's going to put the most out into the world. That's like yeah. really helpful to people. And so I do a ton of different things. Like I started a marketing agency that is now basically like a business and life improvement solutions firm and media company because I'm doing this podcast. And so I have all these different ventures I have going. And a lot of people are just like, how do you do all of this? And to me, it's just about achieving balance and about being as prolific as I can be to help as many people as I can help. Yeah. And I think once you find the things that you're good at and that you love doing and that you can be of service to others, like it's just smooth sailing somewhat, right? Obviously there's hills and valleys in any experience, but it makes it a lot easier when you can be doing something you love for, you know, yeah. people that care about it. Yeah. And I think for college students in particular, I would say, try a ton of different stuff, get oh, out yeah. there. And because a lot of times I would, I genuinely believe I have my dream job now, but I would not have known this existed had I not, and I wouldn't have gotten to where I am, had I not done Hollywood teaching story writing, story study that all felt like it was all over the place. And all of a sudden it all fell into one thing. And so try a bunch of different things and then go where the wind is blowing the sails the hardest. And that like, just like throw, throw everything out there and start moving around and then go, you know what? I don't want to be a banker. <laughs> like you may start and go like work at a bank and go, oh, you know what? I don't want to be a banker. That's not failure. That's a learning. And then go work sandwich shop and go, you know what? No, food service is not for me either. And you just figure it out. And once all of a sudden you feel the wind in your sails, when you're somewhere that just, it feels like, yes, this fits, go with the wind, put up your sail and let the wind take you. And it may not take you forever. It may be like a season that you go for the next year and the wind is blowing and then the wind stops blowing and you go, okay, where's the next wind blowing? And just keep following that and don't view any of those moments as failure, view them as opportunities to learn to take you to the next level. 
Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I definitely feel like you're a kindred spirit. Like I've done, I've been a paratroop in the army. I was an award-winning chef. Like I've been a certified <laughs> yoga teacher. I have a JD MBA. Like I've been all over the place doing all yeah. sorts of different things. And for most people, they look at it and it just looks like absolute chaos. What are yep. you doing? But for yep. me, it's all about just like, following the flow of whatever making the best decision in the moment for the next thing that happens yeah. and for me also like i get bored just doing like the exact same thing which is why i love marketing yep. because yes. you can work with so many different people help them make money but you're going to get like this huge diversity of stuff and, and and lately i've branched into like fractional cmo work which to me is even better because i love the strategy side of it but then you get to work at a high level with all sorts of different companies instead of just killing yourself for 60 to 80 hours a week for one yep. single company. So yep. it just, it keeps it diverse. And I think it also allows you, I think something you've done as well is, is really create what like Charlie Munger talks about in terms of like mental models and creating a lattice work that you can also do that, not just with your men, like your mental models, but your skill set. And then your actual job is like, putting together all these disparate things that most people will be like, what the hell does that all that have to do yeah. with each other? And then you make it into something new, that, like the world has never seen before. And I think that's really incredibly powerful and freeing because nobody can really duplicate Dr. JJ Peterson is doing because you've been on this specific journey to check all these different boxes that most people would never, you know, if they had a choice, check all those boxes, right? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And it really is that I love what you said, like just bring all these things that are desperate together. And all of a sudden, it's almost till after that you see the full picture. And I'm not even sure I see the full picture now, because we'll see what the next step is. I think I'll be with StoryBrand for a really long time. But this is the longest I've been with any company because of everything you're saying. It's like not just getting Board, but it's this is the wind blew here for a while and then mm -hmm. i was like all right what's the next logical thing and now it feels like it's all coming together but who knows what this is preparing me for it, mm -hmm. and that's exciting thing as well oh i love that yeah i'm definitely excited for to see where it all goes so tell me what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life I, let's see building a story brand by donald miller that is actually true have been huge for me in understanding story and basically how to create a framework that grows your business so that's number one let me think i would say from a creativity space one of the fav my favorite books is c.s lewis's great divorce and because it's so not like anything else he wrote, in my opinion, and also very creative and a fresh world. So so is the Chronicles of Narnia, but really the great divorce is like no other book and it's of his and no other book of anybody else's. So that I just love. I will reread that every once in a while just for just to be inspired creatively. And then let me think, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's actually a Kierkegaard book. And the premise behind it that actually had a huge influence on me is that Kierkegaard really is, he would argue that indirect communication is a more important form of communication than direct, because specifically when it comes to politics and religion, and actually if you argue directly with people, try to make factual basic arguments with people on religion or politics that you will drive them deeper into their thinking process and not actually change their mind. And the only way to change people's mind on those kind of things that really deal with identity is through indirect communication. So it's, so it's through story and humor and narrative 
all that kind of indirect way of talking to people and causing what's called double reflection. So they have to think about the story and then think about what it means versus if I just tell you, like, this politician is bad, I don't have to double reflect on that. I only have to think about what you're saying. And if what you're saying is attacking me as a person, because I have that ideal, then I'm only going to go deeper into that ideal. So I think it's called Kierkegaard and indirect communication. I'm not positive, but that just really, I haven't read it in a little while, but it's totally changed the way I approach how I deal with family and friends who have different perspectives than I do and Facebook and social media. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that's all direct communication. And really the research shows that none of that actually works. And the only way to nuance and through story really. Mm, love that. So tell me if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Man, it probably would honestly say those three things that I said earlier. God loves you. You have people who love you and you're going to be okay. I, I think that a lot of people struggle with those three ideas that are they lovable? Are they likable? And is everything going to turn out in the, in the end? And I think just reminding people constantly that God loves you or even whatever your version of God is, you know, that the the universe but i i would specifically say god loves you and you have people who love you that if you're gone this world actually is missing out and you have people who love you and no matter what you're going through you're going to be okay so that would be my billboard god loves you you have people who love you and you're going to be okay oh, i love that hell of a billboard <laughs> so, so tell me what are your go-to self-care strategies tactics or techniques for me movies are a big one escaping into movies because we've been talking about story, but when our, so most human beings actually daydream 30% of the day because our brain is trying to conserve calories, conserve function so that we can essentially, if a tiger jumps out of a bush at us, then we're going to have enough calories to figure out how to get away from it. <laughs> so our brain is, we actually turn our brain off during the day. But because story is such a well-worn path in our brain, when we go into movies, if it's a good story, the story does the daydreaming for us. So our brain actually does shut down a little bit while we're watching movies and especially familiar stories in movies. So that's why everything is formulaic. All movies are the same because it's a familiar story. People like that because their brains can actually turn off a little bit. They don't have to think too deeply. So one of the ways that I rest my brain and I also get myself inspired with creativity is movies. And then Travel. I love to travel, which made 2020 really hard, but experiencing new things and just keeping my world big at any chance that I can get. In fact, I made a decision when I was 18 to leave the, leave the U.S. once a year, that I would leave the country once a year for the rest of my life. And I was able to do it until last year, until during the pandemic. <laughs> last year was the first year I didn't get to leave the country. But this year I'm I already have my trip to Italy planned. So travel and getting out there. Oh, very nice. Oh, I love that. JJ, this has been such an awesome and fun, enlightening conversation. But that does bring me to my final question of the day, which is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Hmm. 
man, I, I, <laughs> I have so many kind people in my life. So I actually have 50 million different ideas of specifics. But enough, I think like the thing that really makes my soul come alive with when other people treat me well is like when I genuinely feel known. So if somebody gives me something or does something for me, that's, oh my gosh, they know me like to feel known by being given by, I hate doing the, I hate doing the laundry. And so if my boyfriend comes over and does the laundry, then I'm like, Oh, I feel known. And so that is the kind thing that like when people actually know me and know little things about me, I love many things. And for my birthday this year, somebody gave me a mini waffle maker with mini syrups. And it was like my favorite thing because it was so kind for them to take the time to think about me and know me and then offer me something out of that knowledge. That's so beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today, JJ. It's been a pleasure getting to speak with you. And for me, we went all over the place today. I loved it. Yeah, it's where I like to go, right? <laughs> Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Awesomeness.